So I'm happy to be here tonight to share some Dharma reflections in this Sangha gathered. I want to begin with a quote from a very well-known Indian saint, Anandamayima. She said, The whole world is yours, of yourself, your very own, but you perceive it as separate. To know it as your own gives happiness, but the notion that it is apart from you causes misery. Either melt by devotion the sense of separateness or burn it away by knowledge, and then you will come to know yourself. This, this, um, this is a part of a series of talks around the place of devotion in Buddhist practice. But I'd also like to weave something of that into the practice of insight and wisdom, which is, this is an insight group, so this is what I think is, for, for many of you, the main focus of your inquiry in picking up the Buddhist teaching. Of course, the Buddha's main focus, and in all of the teachings, the main inquiry is around this whole movement from the experience of what's called dukkha, or the experience of unsatisfactoriness, or in its essence, this word dukkha in some ways means, one translation of the word du means to be apart from the akash, that which is spacious or whole, this So at a subtle level, this profound sense of dis-ease that we experience as human beings of being apart from, somehow separate from a whole or or a totality, and that generates within us all sorts of reactivities and longings and anxieties and fears. And So this is a subtlest level of the experience of dukkha, sometimes just translated as plain suffering. Uh, as human beings, we share in this experience of suffering, uh, different pains and anguishes, and you know, whether it's being with the unloved or parted from the loved, or bodily pains, or mental and emotional, psychological pains, uh, these kinds of experiences that we that we have every day in certain ways that generate the the experience of dukkha. So, or that which is sometimes said, Duke is also translated sometimes as that which is simply hard to bear, that which is difficult to be with, and sometimes life just can feel a bit like that. <laughs> it's just a bit difficult. Um, so the Buddha's inquiry was this movement from the experience of dukkha or constriction to non-dukkha, the liberation from that, the total an absolute liberation of the jitta or the heart or mind from this experience of dukkha. And this, the Buddha said, is possible for us to realize and to mature into as human beings, to really liberate the heart from any trace of dukkha. It doesn't mean to say one won't experience pain or difficulty or challenge, but the the dukkha that the Buddha was talking about is the suff- that's, that we liberate from is the suffering that's generated from this state of what's called avijja, or, or ignorance is usually translated as, but really means not seeing clearly the nature of things, not seeing the actuality of how things are, or misinterpretation of the reality of life, the assumptions we make, wanting things to be permanent and lasting when they're not, you know, wanting trying to find our, our, our wholeness in things that are moment, you know, momentarily fleeting, 
So this this fundamental uh, and more profoundly the the identification that we have with uh, as a self structure with the movement of thought, feeling, perception, memory, the flow of consciousness, where we try to find a sense of uh, of uh, placement, meaning, wholeness, completion. This sort of uh, feeling of always moving and finding the the right place, the right thing, this, this experience is generated from the inability at some level to, to deeply accept the way life is, uh, just you know, profoundly allowing it to be as it is. Uh, and moments when we can really do that, the mind liberates from this ignorance, this fundamental of ignorance, of, of demanding it be any other way in this moment. Which doesn't mean that we don't work to try and alleviate, you know, to change suffering and to change things and to better things, but there's somehow this constant agitation in each moment of our experience, the projection of the mind onto it somehow needing to be another way, uh, the body, the heart, the mind, the feelings, others needing to be another way than they are, generates this experience of dukkha. So this, this is, a, in some ways, you know, the Buddha pitched his teaching from this premise because this is a very human experience. You know, he's not um, pitching from the, the level of you know, enlightenment and, and, and saying, well, coming out with the pronouncement, you're already awakened, you're already enlightened, you just need to realize it, end of story. <laughs> Which is, in a way, a truth, but we don't tend to be able to do a lot with that. So this, 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 but this statement of there is the experience of dukkha, we, you know, today, how many of us didn't experience dukkha? <laughs> See, oh, you didn't? Oh, that's great. You can just spread metta to the rest of us. <laughs> you know, but, you know, for all of us, we can identify with it. And if you didn't today, you will tomorrow, I promise you. So have a moment of anxiety or worry or something. So... So to, to explore this, you know, so within the teaching, all teachings, all the Buddha's teachings are really, in a way, uh, a pathway into this exploration somewhere, some, you know, the, around the experience of dukkha and the alleviation of it and the, and the realization of that and then the embodiment and the living out from that realization. So this, this you know, the way of investigating the Buddha laid out a path path activity that we can actually live and explore and cultivate you know that essentially it is applying some of this path activity that begins to uh, alleviate this experience of dukkha if we if we um, come from the premise that somehow I've got to do this and you know I've now got to get enlightenment and sort out this fix this experience of suffering then we're already coming from a premise of, 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 a, of a, a shaky assumption, the sense of I having to do something about it. Whereas in fact, even more subtly seeing into this whole assumption of the I uh, begins to illuminate the, 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 the false premise in some ways that we're even operating from. But this doesn't mean to say that there's something that, that there's not something that can be done. And what can be done is the application of these moments of what's called path activity, moments of mindfulness, moments of being more present, moments of inquiry, moments of investigation. 
So as a, as a group that's practicing insight meditation, a very um, big part of this path activity is the practice of meditation itself. The gathering, you know, as we sit here, we're learning to gather into awareness through mindfulness of the breath, uh, body, mind energies, heart energies, so that they can begin to be more unified, to subside from the restlessness of the, the mind's restlessness can subside and we can begin as the, the, the thinking mind calms and centers and subsides with the um, practice of mindfulness of breath as the body begins to lose some of its tensions and its holdings through the practice of this mindfulness of breath as well as the heart begins to soften and open through metta and the gathering then there are moments of uh, recognition of, the, of what we might call the mind or the heart itself, the jitta itself. Which, uh, and that taste of that or the recognition of that is this experience of what we just might simply call awareness or that which is just simply present. So fundamentally in the Buddhist understanding the, the mind or the heart is already fundamentally luminous or bright or aware or present but there is that which obstructs our ability to know that to realize that and what obstructs our ability to be peacefully deeply rooted in the the primordial awareness of mind are these habit tendencies these what's called sankara these patternings these hindrances these things that come up and and these formations of dukkha that obstruct and constrict and generate these uh, these um, that which is a you know creates a lack of peace which creates dukkha so in the, in the you know as the the heart and mind begins to gather through this activity of meditation or awareness then what can be brought to bear is this really strong faculty of the path activity, the cultivation of wisdom, is the investigation into what really obstructs our ability to peacefully be here. What is it in the heart and mind in any moment that generates this experience of dukkha and unsatisfactoriness and struggle? And most subtly, the Buddha pointed to this tendency to what he called identify. Identify with, with the movement of thought, with feeling, with body sensation, with memory, with perception, which is what is essentially called the five khandhas. These five movements of everything we can experience, the, the, the form of the body, the feeling tone, the sensation, thought forms, memories, perceptions, moments of sensory consciousness, moments of feeling, tasting, touching, knowing. Um, And this this thing called uh, sankara, which means sort of karmic formations, patterns, the sense, the shape of ourself, how we sense ourselves to be happy, unhappy, depressed, anxious, getting somewhere, accomplishing something, losing something being successful, being a failure, <laughs> all the different shapes and roles and per, per, personas that we take ourselves to be. The, the Buddha said the main root of this experience of dukkha comes from our tendency to erroneously identify 
and, and try and create stability in that which is moving and shifting. So the, the, the practice of wisdom to see more deeply into these, these khandhas or five uh, shapings, five khandhas being rupa or form, vedana or feeling, sanya, perception, memory, uh, sankara, this sort of larger sense of shape or pattern, and what's called vinyana, moments of sensory consciousness. This investigation through the activity of wisdom begins to see essentially, although these forms appear and these shapes come about and the sense of self arises, there's a fundamental emptiness. We can't exactly pin down ourselves as one thought or one feeling or one ambition or one intention or one volition because they're so, you know, momentarily arising and passing and changing and shifting and, you know, so this morning we were happy and this afternoon we're sad and tomorrow we're confident and the next day we're we're lacking. So which piece is really us? (laughs) So the Buddha said it's a bit like, you know, if you went to the river Ganges and you picked up a bubble of foam on the top of the river and you looked at it, it's there, it's like foam, but if you, it kind of would dissolve. So, in you know this 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 emptying of the in, of the khandhas, as it's called, the emptying of the khandhas through wisdom, through seeing, it's not the denial of the shapes and the forms and the senses of self that we experience ourself to be, but it's the recognition of the relativity of the self, and fundamentally, all the shapes, all the moments of perception, feeling even the experience of our body as we experience it as sensation is arising and passing within this greater awareness. So this, you know, tonight we would reflect on the Bodhisattva Guan Yin or Kuan Yin in the Heart Sutra, which is the, 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 the essential wisdom text in Mahayana school. We find Avalokiteshvara, which is another name, a Sanskrit name for Kuan Shu Yin, we find Avalokiteshvara encouraging Sariputra, the, uh, the disciple known prim- primarily as for wisdom, the, sort of the supreme disciple um, accomplished in wisdom. Sariputra is being encouraged by Avalokiteshvara to, to contemplate the five khandhas as empty. So this is, in a way, one of the the aspects of Guan Yin is this dwelling and insight into depth, emptiness. That in fact all forms that appear, all shapes, all that's conditioned, all that arises, has within it this nature of insubstantiality. It doesn't mean to say it doesn't exist, but if we actually penetrated it more with our wisdom eye, we would sort of we can begin to see that it's. We can't ultimately put our finger on a substantial piece that's not in the process of shifting and changing and moving. So as a, a, or as a Chinese master, Master Hua said that, uh, that uh, you, know, you can't really say things are empty because they exist. He called it wonderful existence. But you can't say things exist because they're empty. You know, so there's this insight that comes about through the penetration of the what's called these five khandhas. So here, you know, in the in the practice of the Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, 
there's this aspect of Kuan Yin which is this holding of the archetype of and, and expressing the archetype of this deep wisdom but as, as one penetrates more deeply into the emptiness of conditions of self and the, what's called the anatta the selflessness of conditions and the shunyata the emptiness of the world of phenomena what one begins to get what begins to get revealed is in actuality the interdependence of everything we, we, we can say this is my body this is my thought this is my dhamma talk <laughs> But actually all of it depends on so many other conditions. I can't have this body without t- be taking an in-breath of oxygen. And that oxygen doesn't really happen if there are not trees giving out oxygen and taking in the carbon dioxide. And you know, this Dhamma talk doesn't happen without other teachers that I've listened to and you know, practices. And it's all it's so interwoven. We can't really cut out a piece of the universe and say, this is me and that's you ultimately. We can relatively do it, and we should be able to do that and say, yes, this is me and that's you, and there's a difference. But in the, in the sphere of awareness, as the mind begins to relax into its own nature of awareness, it begins to understand that, that, that all phenomena is arising and passing in an interconnected way. So it's said that deep insight into emptiness, from that emerges the recognition of interconnectedness. And it's that recognition that begins to allow us to feel, to empathize and to feel with the totality, to move out of that fixation of our separateness. And it's all about me. Me as the star player in in the drama of it all. And and we begin to, you know, recognize that actually what's called me is 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 part of an interdependent flow or process. And as we start to move out of that fixation and shaping, it's not a denial of the, you know, the relative sense of me, but it's, a, it's some kind of liberation and opening out of that, then we can begin to appreciate and empathize. And so then we begin to get the emergence of the other great dimension of the practice of, or the insight or the archetype of Kuan Yin, which is the emergence of that which is compassionate. which we can truly, you know, as we empty more out of our fixation on on the sense of ourself and getting the world right for me and getting it, you know, everything sorted, and we begin to open the mind, just simply open it more, we begin to notice others and what's happening and the experience of, of resonating, feeling with. You know, the root of compassion comes with our ability to feel with or what's called to listen with. So Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, in the Sanskrit word, this Avalokite, means literally to regard, or to listen, or to contemplate, and Shvara, meaning sound. And it's transliterated into Kuan Shu Yin, Kuan meaning to, uh, to, to regard, contemplate uh, shir meaning um, uh, um, um, the world sorry meaning the world and yin meaning sound so kuan shu yin literally means the one that regards sounds so this regarding of sound is not just 
the literal sounds, like the sounds I'm making in this talk, talk, but it's almost like listening more deeply into the fabric of the universe and listening of the, to the sounds of living beings, sounds of all the different sounds that we make. Not, and as I said, not just literal sound, but feelings and emotions and thoughts and perceptions and creations and pains and sufferings and joys and loves and hates, the whole gamut of manifestation. So this practice of deep listening is a practice of both that which empties um, from our unconscious attachments and rejections and push and pull in the moment of life. So it's both a practice that releases from that and also begins to allow us to more deeply resonate and listen more profoundly into the, to the nature of things. And particularly in honing in this contemplation of compassion, it's a particular honing to the contemplation or the listening to the sounds of suffering. So Kuan Yin is often known as the merciful one listening to the sounds of suffering. Listening to all sounds, but particularly those sounds where there's beings in a state of suffering. I remember the the very first Dhamma talk I I heard of um, Ajahn Chah, who's one of my teachers that I met in the 1970s, and uh, he gave this wonderful Dharma talk. It was in Thai and it was being translated. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, this is really good. Yeah, this is really good. Yeah, this is great stuff. You know, I hadn't heard many Dharma talks in my life. And at the end of the talk, he said, well, if you've been sitting here listening to this, thinking this is good or this is bad, then you, you haven't been listening properly. You know? <laughs> I thought, that's really good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, the mind's like that. It's always judging, isn't it? Always filtering through our, where does this fit? And do I approve, don't I? And <laughs> so this listening that's suggested in the practice of Guan Yin is a, a listening beneath those, those initial ways that we, in a way, sort of bounce off what we're actually in contact with because of our judgments good, it's bad, I like, I don't, it fits, it don't, and, you know, and, and it implies when we judge, when we judge ourselves or the world or another, we're not really feeling with, we're not empathetically with, we sort of close down the mind. So compassion implying, implying the ability to feel with and to hold this quality of attention that is developed in um, mindfulness practice. So we mindfulness to breath, to body sensation. If they're suffering, holding attention to that, without the need to even fix it or to sort it or to get rid of it or to, you know. But just through the activity, bringing to bear this heart of Guan Yin, this heart of patient, empathetic, gentle listening. That's also uh, deeply dwelling in equanimity, which isn't you know, the, the equanimity of emptiness, is really allows that, the, that quality of awareness itself, the quality of heart in relationship to what's being listened to or what's being touched, that suffering in and of itself, that begins to bring a transformative effect. 
is something that I experience very much in my practice. And, and, you know, as practitioners, we often start with this body and mind. We can have great ideals about being a bodhisattva and saving other living beings, and we can't even be with this body and mind for a few minutes, you know, with our agitations and our disappointments and in our, the things that make our heart sore. So one of the, the practices that in, in my monastic training that my uh, teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, would often encourage, he would say, well, in a way, we're listening to the orphans of consciousness. We're listening to those parts in meditation, you know, rather than trying to get somewhere, get enlightened, get concentrated, <laughs> get this, get that, get rid of the other, you know, sort it all out. You know, sometimes we just sit and we're just willing, you know, get come into our breath and sit, just willing to listen to those places in our being that we usually just push away. You know, sort of moaning, grumpy mind, you know, the sort of a mind that just doesn't know what to do, and the sort of wails and cries of the heart. You know, and as we are able to listen more deeply into this body-mind, we begin to recognize, of course, you know, this is shared with all beings. You know, when, when I'm listening to my feeling of, uh, of some form of struggle or suffering or pain or loss or sadness, it's exactly the same as when you are experiencing that. So in the, in the Shurangama Sutra, in the Heart Sutra, it's this profound emptying of the five khandhas in the Shurangama Sutra, Kuan Yin appears in four major sutras in the Mahayana school. In the Shurangama Sutra, one, the, you know, which is a text with many different commentaries on it, but one uh, piece where Avalokiteshvara is asked to to um, to explain his or her, because Kuan Yin Avalokiteshvara can appear in a masculine and feminine form. Um, in any form, which we can touch into just now. Compassion can appear, it's very formless, ultimately. Kuan Yin, or Avakiteshwara, is asked to uh, comment on her preferred method, his preferred method. And Avakiteshwara talks about the what's called the, the returning of the hearing, the listening to sound and returning, hearing back into what's called the self-nature. It's more not necessarily a Theravadan term, it's more from a Chinese Buddhist term, but this listening into who is the one listening? Where do these, where do all these sounds, where do all these, that which is emerging from the, you know, the the conditions of life, where where is it all resting back into? What's actually listening? Who is it that is actually listening? So this this method is which was the beginning of the Chan and the Zen is is is, is this this whole notion of turning the mind usually the, the mind's energy the the jitta or the mind the heart sort of r- runs out through the sense doors and creates when there's um you know through sensory experience we immediately have this feeling of the sense of seeing hearing tasting touching thinking. Um, and when that's operating, I'm seeing, I'm seeing you, and as I'm seeing you, automatically a sense of I arises, the, the, the subject-object dualism arises in each sensory moment. I'm hearing a sound and there's someone hearing it. 
I'm seeing you and there's a me that's seeing this is called a dualistic consciousness that's arising at the sense door vinyana, a divided knowing it's the knowing of the mind is poured into a sense of subject and object and thinking of course you know, there's the sense I, there's a thinker in here <laughs> <laughs> it's thinking all these thoughts and no wonder we get confused because in the morning we were thinking this and in the afternoon we were thinking which piece is it is it me you know so but that's you know we see thought as a sense arising and then the thinker but actually they arise and pass together they, in the meditation as we slow that down we see there's gaps actually gaps in, in all of it holes and so in, the, in this turning the mind, the mind that's usually flowing out through this dualistic consciousness, it's this question of who, or returning the hearing back into the listening nature, begins to turn the mind back into its own nature. It's called its own original brightness, its own original stillness, its own original suchness or immovability, its own presence. So in the Shurangama Sutra, uh, Kuan Yin or Vrikiteshvara talks about this method. And, and, and uh, the Buddha comments that this is a very expedient method for this age. You know, returning listening to sound or listening and noticing the one that's listening or the awareness itself. So as a practice, learning to listen you know, beyond our assumptions, beyond our reactions, beyond our the restlessnesses of the mind it takes a lot of patience doesn't it you know just to to hang there enough to to allow things to settle enough to have moments of really being able to rest in this in that which is just aware that which is just present and to trust that to begin to really what's called take refuge align with that rather than all the ups and downs and, and what can really help us and this brings to uh, one of the methods or one of the practices around Kuan Yin um, which uh, is talked about in the, in the Lotus and the Dharani Sutras two other sutras which illuminate the Dharmador of Kuan Yin is the holding of the name or mantra practice I just wanted to say a little bit about that uh, because we can, you know, sometimes we can, particularly if we're Theravada Buddhist, <laughs> as I've, my root is really, we think, oh, that's, you know, that's a, that's a sort of silly practice, <laughs> doing mantras, you know, it's just a bit twee <laughs> sometimes. But it's actually very profound, you know, to actually, um, this, this, you know, this, this being with, being, being with the, the sankara or the momentum or that, the forms of life, you know, and there's one piece of the practice which is emptying, coming back, resting in the heart that's just aware, but it's a whole other practice to pick up and be skillfully with the forms of life, with compassion, to touch with compassion. And so this, this holding of mantra, as I said in the beginning of the evening, uh, the man- mantra is, literally means that which protects or guides the mind's energy because the mind can just go any which way you know without practice it's almost like it will just follow the law of gravity you know down into a pathway of worry or anxiety or distraction or 
so this this uh, holding in, in this regard, in this situation in this practice the holding of the name of Kuan Yin is a practice that helps return the mind back to this steadiness Namo Kuan Shu Yin Pusa Namo Kuan Shu Yin Pusa and so if we're with a situation that's very difficult or if we're feeling overwhelmed um, or feeling flooded by one of these uh, Sankara's patterns, you know, and, and lost, then coming to hold the name of Kuan Yin is said to be a very effective method and said to separate us from suffering. It begins to allow the mind to return to its own steadiness and begins also more pa- profoundly, and this is where, you know, traditionally this particular practice is. Is more associated with the faith-based practice. It traditionally connects with the qualities of Kuan Yin, you know, the intentions of Kuan Yin, or in the Lotus Sutra, what's called the vow power of Kuan Yin. So, so the you know, the, the the Buddha taught a, a sutra in the Theravada called the Salt Crystal. Um, from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is a very interesting um, principle which can relate to this practice of using the mantra and relate to it in terms of the connection with the energy of Kuan Yin or this faster holding of the, the mind, the heart of the Bodhisattva as an archetype, if you like. Um, he talked about that when there is a resultant karma, unwholesome karma, things that come up that are difficult to be with. He said if the the heart or the mind is undeveloped um, in virtue, in in discernment, is restricted and small-hearted, is limited, then it's a bit like when something difficult comes up, he said it's a bit like a salt crystal in a glass of water. One can't really digest it. You know, it's bitter. So something in life can really hit us very powerfully and evoke, you know, something might happen and it can evoke some very strong karmic patterns, you know, places of really feeling lost, overwhelmed, confused, despairing. Um, and it can happen to us, it can happen in our families, in our society, it happens all the time. Uh, but then conversely, the, the Buddha said, if the same effect same difficult, unwholesome mind state, feeling tone, experience comes up for one that is well developed um, in virtue, that has developed a unrestricted heart, has developed a large, large hearted and is able to dwell with the immeasurable, then it's a bit like a salt crystal in the Ganges. You know, it's diluted. So something bitter can come up and you have enlarging the mind as the capacity to dilute and transform and heal. So this practice of Kuan Yin, you know, this is one way of looking at it, when one holds the name of a bodhisattva, this faith-based practice, this devotional practice, one's holding the name, um, whether, however we see Kuan Yin, whether we see it you know, as an archetype, as an actual mystical, mythical being of some sort of cosmic being, as an energy, um, as the actuality of our true nature, 
Um, however we understand, it's as we begin to imbibe the holding of the mantra with the qualities uh, of compassion, of listening, of patience, these qualities of what's you know the Bodhisattva heart, then when with that name those qualities are evoked, they become more and more evoked, which begins to allow the salt crystal, you know, the, the, the of whatever we're with, become diluted. So these are just some different different ways of of looking at uh, you know this this archetype or this you know just very briefly touching into some of these principles around this practice of uh, Kuan Yin. I found in in my life that it's um, I found it a very beautiful practice to uh, reflect also on these different manifestations in in one of the Kuan Yin practices of holding what's called in the Dharani Sutra holding a mantra uh, Dharani, which is a long mantra, different sounds. In each of those sounds, there's the uh, they encapsulate an embodiment of an aspect of Kuan Yin, what's called her hands and eyes. And um, you might have seen sometimes these statues of Kuan Yin or these depictions of Kuan Yin with a thousand hands and eyes. And in the, the main, what's called the 42 hands and eyes, are sort of some of them are very uh, very lovely images like vases to pour sweet dew to cool people out. Some of them are whisks to wipe away obstructions. You know, some of them are very peaceful and lovely images. And then on the other side, there are things like axes to cut through and swords and lassoes to tie up obstructions. And so the idea that compassion isn't just, you know, like being a sort of a compassionate doormat that people just walk over you it also has this fierceness it can have strength it has power so all these different manifestations of Kuan Yin uh, depict both the, the deep emptiness um, of the heart in its natural state and its ability from that emptiness for the appropriate response to emerge in, in, in relationship to the suffering of life so ultimately as um, to finish this, these few thoughts, as um, a Chinese master from whom um, I was able to enter into some of these Dhamma doors and reflect around some of these themes and his teachings, Master Xinhua, one of his uh, sayings was ultimately when we really recognize, when we, through this practice of insight, which we cultivate in this uh, insight meditation group, the ability to really let go and open and recognize the natural radiancy and awareness of the heart, then we'll recognize our true nature. And Mustawa expressed it like this. And this is really the, the body of Guan Yin. All living beings are my family. This universe is my body. Empty space is my university. My name is empty and formless. My function is kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So may that be so for all of us. Thank you for your attention. So we have a few minutes. I don't know if you have any thoughts or questions, but please feel free if you do. <coughs> 
namo, which means I honor, or sometimes it's uh, in Chinese I translate it as I return my life. Namo, N-A-M-O, Quan, Quan, which means regard, K-U-A-N. Shu, S-H-R, which uh, means world, and Yin, Y-I-N, which means sound, Quan Shu Yin, Pusa, which is a Chinese transliteration for Bodhisattva, an enlightened being who works to alleviate suffering of others. So, Namo Quan Shi Yin Pusa, Namo Quan Shi Yin Pusa. And the mantra, if, if one says it over, it goes, Namo Quan Shi Yin Pusa, Namo Quan Shi Yin Pusa, Namo Quan Shi Yin Pusa. Namo Quan Shi Yin Pusana. So it goes like that, okay? So when one's in one of those states that you feel overwhelmed, it says, Namo Quan Shi Yin Pusana. It starts to remind one to let go, to empty, to be patient, to listen. <laughs> or just Quan Yin. One can just use Quan Yin with the breath. Quan. Yeah. Just when you're about to lose it. Bodhisattva of compassion. And you know, as uh, Master Wa said, you know, if you don't know who Kuan Yin is, just say your own name, and eventually when you get to understand who you are, you know who Kuan Yin is. <laughs> it would be appropriate for you to comment on provoking the name in terms of a rescuing. Uh, context, it's just a matter of writing the right line for art. Is there different? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very big part of the pa- practice. For many of Pure Land practitioners, that's really the evoking the name is about looking for the merciful response. You know, so there's many, many different stories around that, and that's in the Lotus Sutra, that's one of the. There's no particular perfect way, you know, it's like there's this. In a way, uh, the, the idea of Kuan Yin Bodhisattva is more like uh, a friend. So you don't have to be in some particular special, you know, you just like, it's more the mind in its natural state, whatever, whatever way we can be. So one just starts the mantra in whatever state one's in, you know, so it doesn't have to be some perfect way. I've seen an awful lot of reference to physical and emotional healing. Um, I guess it could be any variety, but it seems to be more around Well, her, yeah, her, her particular thing, you know, is 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 in, is the merciful response to any form of suffering, and so you find you find in the in the. I mean, it's, it's, it's lovely. I mean, one can see it very literally, but one can also see it very metaphorically that, you know, you find in the Lotus Sutra these what's called her transformation bodies or his, you know, the idea that compassion can come in any particular form. And um, I was, you know, when I was thinking about this today, I was looking um, um, on the internet and I was just checking out, someone had sent me a web link from um, a, a great saint, Indian saint called Neem Karoli Baba, who was more, more known through Ramdas as his guru, and there's a story where he, where he's, you know, one of his disciples saying, "Oh, I want you to come and come and bless us, and I want you to come to our home and come and accept food." And so, um, you know, and 
then Kauri Baba didn't come. So this disciple got very upset and went to him and said, why didn't you come? He said, no, I came, but you beat me and shooed me away. And then he remembered that the dog, a, a stray dog had come and he hit the dog and shooed him away. And, you know, it's sort of like, well, you just don't know how it's going to go, <laughs> the merciful response. So there's a line in, in the sutra that says the response and the way are intertwined inconceivably. That when one begins to deepen into that place of trusting the innate awareness, there's, you know, literally miracles can happen. You know, and, and the Kuan Yin mantra helps us just go to that trust. And you don't know how that response will come. Yeah, but so it's something mysterious. So in, in that Dharma door of Kuan Yin, it's, a, it's called a mysterious, it's mysterious. One doesn't exactly, can't quantify it. So um, I'm realizing as oh sorry, just take one more last question, yeah. In the representation of Kuan Yin, was there a particular time at which Kuan Yin was more represented as a female yeah, historically it seems that you know as the transmission of Dharma came up from India went into China historically um, Avalokiteshvara was masculine and then she did a gender flip when she went into China and there's lots of stories about maybe she became more affiliated or, or, or subsumed into some sort of goddess that was there in China already you know that kind of way the movement of of the, so the, what time I don't know I can't historically I'm not sure of the timeline but you'll find it if you look up on the net there'll be information about that kind of stuff so yeah in terms of there's quite a lot there available now in terms of the historical movement of her as an archetype or as a deity as she moves I don't quite know how she'll manifest in the west that's yet to be seen <laughs> so what I'd like to do just to finish we have a minute or two, just I'd like to finish with one of the heart mantras of Avalokiteshvara Om Mani Padme Hum of course this is uh, known in Korean, Chinese, Tibetan Buddhism and as we can finish our meeting tonight I'd like to particularly dedicate this Dhamma uh, meeting to, um, to all beings and particularly loved ones that are, that are any loved ones that are suffering or in difficulty I want to dedicate it to my uh, father-in-law, Mo Weinberg, who's suffering at the moment in hospital. And so, as we hold this mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, just allow the sound to ripple out and bearing in mind um, those that are struggling, suffering, loved ones, and then those beyond all beings, wherever they dwell, may their hearts be separated from the experience of suffering, and may they recognize the peaceful heart.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.